Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. My guest today is Blake File. But before we get to Blake, here's a few announcements. Our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there. You can see stories that I've written, stories that some of the guests have written. You can see photos of the guests. You can see photos of me. You can see links to their social media, and you can see links to our social media. And that is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter, although I'm not uh, really posting too much on Twitter anymore and probably will get off it. Uh, and it's not so much to do with what's uh, happening in the world and over at Twitter, but uh, I never liked it, I'll be quite honest, <laughs> and haven't been that active. But anyway, we are on there at Travel Tales Pod. And uh, we do have our Facebook page, so if you could um, follow us there. And also find us on YouTube. We have a YouTube uh, page with a lot of videos that I've shot uh, around the world. So if you can check that out, please do. On our site, we also have links to Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Radio. And we're on iHeartRadio and basically everywhere you find podcasts. So wherever you get your podcasts, please give us a good rating because that helps more people find the show by boosting our presence. And that's cool. I never asked you guys for money, but uh, according to some of my friends, I should. <laughs> I'm a bad businessman. I do this out of the love of my heart, but there are times, man, where I think, oof, man, cover some of the expense and the time that I have put into getting this thing out there over the many years I've been doing it. It might be down the road, so we'll see. Anyway, if you think you'd be right for the show or you know somebody would be right for the show or maybe you want to say nice things or ask me travel questions or anything, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's get to our guest, Blake File. Blake is someone who uh, whose people reached out to me. I checked out uh, his site and his podcast, and uh, I thought he'd be a good guest for the show, and he is, I think. Blake is the host and creator of Abandoned, the All-American Ruins podcast. And it's not just about going to abandoned places, although that's part of it, but uh, it's also about a journey within. And uh, Blake will describe it much better than I can right here. But it's much more of, a, of an immersive uh, experience listening to his podcast. And he puts a lot of work into it, and uh, I admire it. And it's pretty interesting. He's a guy that, uh, you know, we always talk about how travel cannot just... It's not just about the journey of uh, the external journey, but also the internal journey. And Blake talks freely about being a recovering addict and how... Uh, visiting these places, especially during the pandemic. It started out as a way to uh, get away from people, but really it became more about an inner journey and how experiencing these abandoned places uh, helped him heal in a traumatic time. So check out his All-American Ruins podcast. We'll have links to all his sites at TravelTalesPodcast.com, along with his socials. And file is spelled P-F-E-I-L. So check him out, give him a listen, give him a follow. But before you do all that, get to know him right here and enjoy my conversation with Blake File. (laughs) 
My name is Blake File, and the pronunciation, I just gave you the pronunciation, and the <laughs> spelling is P like Paul, F like Frank, E-I-L, which is... Boy, am I glad I asked, because I was saying it wrong all week. <laughs> it's okay. It's, uh, <laughs> we try to avoid letting people know that we have all of this German heritage, um, uh-huh. just sort of breeze right past it. First day of school must have been great for you. <laughs> it's that and telemarketers. Right. Um, so you're in upstate New York, mm-hmm. in the... Uh, New Paltz area up there near Woodstock, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And how long have you lived up there? I moved up to this area of the Hudson Valley in 2017. Okay. And you were living in New York City? Yep. I was living in New York City for, I'd been there for seven years and woke up one morning and had this sort of jump start where I realized, oh, the way that I'm living actually isn't working at all. And the way I've been operating is at negative speed. So I need <laughs> an adjustment. What part of the city were you living in? Kind of all over. I wound up in Queens, up uh, way out in Kew Gardens, which was sort of my foyer into getting used to commuting into the city because right. it's about the same number of minutes as it is from where I live um, on that pesky E train. And <laughs> before that, I was I spent a majority of the time in uh, Washington Heights. Okay, yeah, I used to live in Brooklyn when I lived there back in the. In a time we call the 90s, which is way past your... <laughs> I've heard of before it. your day, yeah. Of the 90s. <laughs> uh, um, so where are you from originally? Mm. Born and raised in Colorado Springs, Colorado, right in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Beautiful. Uh, it was a really lovely place to grow up. I was really lucky. But also, as far as I know, a very conservative place, correct? Deeply conservative. And... A challenging conservative at that because I was raised in an evangelical household. Oh, and, there you go. Yeah, and had um, had quite a number of secrets that I kept for a very long time because it wasn't a safe environment to expose those secrets. Um, but what's really interesting is as the years have progressed and as the political landscape in this country has really evolved. So have family members who at one point were on one side of the spectrum. And because of certain presidential elections and Uh things with personal ideologies and beliefs um, have made quite a reckoning with how they feel about things. And so we're actually in a pretty rad spot at this point, me and most of my family, which is cool. That's great. I mean, it's also a military place because the Air Force is Academies based out of there. Was your family in the military? Well, by extension, my father was a contractor at NORAD. So oh. he worked with satellites that did some kinds of spying things. We actually <laughs> don't really know to this day what he did. He wasn't allowed to talk about it. But my house where I grew up uh, bordered the United States Air Force Academy. And my brother. Uh, actually attended high school on the base at Air Academy High School. And so military presence, especially uh, Air Force, was quite prevalent growing up just by proximity. And a lot of our neighbors were actual direct military. And so there were constantly cadets in and around the neighborhood I grew up in, just because all of these families would host these cadets who were at the Air Force base. And so it was not uncommon to see in one swoop leaving or entering my neighborhood either a pack of cadets or a pack of nuns because (laughs) in this same neighborhood there was 
a huge nunnery called Mount St. Francis, which at one point was an abandoned, well, it had been abandoned and then it was um, given to the St. Francis sisters. Um, it was a, it was built as a tuberculosis sanatorium in the early 1900s. Um, and that land that that neighborhood I grew up in sat on was where a lot of people wound up um, getting healed from tuberculosis in the 1900s. Wow. Okay. Well, you said the A word, abandoned, and now we're going to talk about uh, your your site. I guess you could, is it a show? I mean, I would describe all American ruins. Sure. The best way to distill it is it's a multimedia travelogue, which chronicles my experiences exploring abandoned spaces across the United States, but through a fantastical lens. So I'm taking folks through physical, um, I guess, sort of guided meditations, while also simultaneously guiding folks through what's happening in my imagination as I'm recreating this, these experiences. So it's part fact, part fiction, and a whole lot of immersive. Um, <laughs> it started as a blog and as a way to pass the time. When the pandemic started, I was one of those people who felt particularly unsafe. I've always been a germaphobe. Um, moving to big cities from Colorado was kind of... Yeah, you must have loved the weird. subway as a as a germaphobe. <laughs> Dude, like Purell came out like right when I went to college in Boston. Um, <laughs> and so it was kind of a natural progression for me to like pick up Purell and, um, you know, just completely destroy all of the good germs that I have in my body. Um, but the pandemic happened and I, I think... I really allowed the narratives that the mass media were projecting, rightfully so in a lot of instances, um, to get to me. And because of that, I realized that there was this influx of city folks coming up uh, in droves because of how awful things were in the city, this epicenter of this thing. And so I didn't even feel safe on the trails. Um, I'm surrounded by mountains and gorgeous scenery, as you know, um, in this area. and. One day I woke up maybe three months into the pandemic and I had had this dream about this abandoned dairy farm, which was part of that tuberculosis sanatorium that I grew up near. And I frequented this place when I was a kid. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, with this conservative Christian upbringing and keeping secrets, when I was introduced to this property by my father when I was five or six, I realized there was a way to get inside. And what I didn't realize is that sitting inside of this um, dairy farm, particularly the attached farmhouse, there was an entire universe um, that was just waiting for me to explore and uh, dig into my imagination, which ultimately became a, my safest space. Church was never my sanctuary. Getting inside of this dairy farm was my sanctuary because I could create entire worlds inside there that were safe and made me feel secure. Um, and in a really strange way, seen uh, in ways that I wasn't able to feel seen in real life. So fast forward to 2020, I wake up, I had this dream about this abandoned dairy farm. And I thought, well, maybe there are abandoned spaces near me in the Hudson Valley. And sure as shit, they're everywhere. <laughs> um, and I realized that there are approximately 45,000 documented abandoned buildings in this country alone at any given time. And so I started slowly venturing out further and further south, further and further north. And eventually I covered the entire country 
I would get in my car um, on the weekends and I would drive to a new location and I would spend time there the exact same way that I did when I was a kid. And I realized that I was once again creating entire universes um, and allowing that childhood individual who still lives within me and I think lives within all of us to really uh, make me feel safe again in another time of great uncertainty um, where everything just felt <laughs> like it was going to go to hell. Uh, and so again, I reclaimed these sanctuaries as an adult when it became a deeply healing practice, actually. Um, and as a result, a friend of mine suggested I start to write about it because I'm a writer. And so I did. <laughs> and I started dictating exactly what was going on. And uh, the radio station I work for caught wind of it. They invited me to make a podcast, which I had never done. And I was like, oh, well, I think what I'll do, <laughs> I think what I'll do is I will create an immersive audio fantasy where I'm going to give people a 360 binaural uh, experience um, in these spaces, which is like a lot to bite off of as a newbie. Um, and then that was caught wind of by this production company, Hudzi, who is a local platform up here, sort of, you could build them as the Netflix of the Hudson Valley. They caught wind of the podcast and the blog and invited me to adapt it into a, a formative series, a four-episode series. And so it became this multimodal travelogue that allowed me to share these beautiful experiences that I had had over the course of three years in a really unique and um, multitude of ways. It was also a way for me to allow myself to be a multidisciplinary artist, which was something I had never really staked a claim in because I was too afraid that I was spreading myself too thin over so many different artistic disciplines. When in reality, that's just something that we're told, I think, in this country that we have to focus on one thing and we have to choose a career and we have to do that one thing and do it really well. And the fact of the matter is, I think most of us have a lot of skills. And um, I think finding a space for all of those things to exist in one reality was the biggest blessing as an artist. Um, I realize that's a very, very comprehensive answer to your question, <laughs> but that is what, what it is. I would say give the elevator pitch, but that was a long elevator ride. That was so a 12 minute elevator ride. We got stuck actually. So I always wondered, it seems to be, I've talked to another guy uh, last year, or a couple of years ago about uh, his thing is abandoned spaces as well. Greg abandoned, um, you know, he has an Instagram account and all these things, and he travels around the world finding these abandoned places. But for him, it seemed to be more about, I don't know, he, he kind of like was always interested in dystopia, you know, how things kind of like fall apart. You know, he was loved, you know, post-apocalyptic movies, you know, Mad Max kind of things that you grew up liking. So I think there's appeal to him in that way. But I think for you, I think it's more about... Uh, getting away from people <laughs> in a way. I mean, that's how it started. That was the original appeal. It seems, I mean, what do these abandoned places give you that say like going away to a retreat or just sitting in the woods doesn't give you like getting away from people? Yeah. I mean, I think it was less about getting away from people and actually getting to myself and that was going to be impossible without a pandemic. And I, I say this quite often now because I think 
you know, we've just gone through this pretty uh, extraordinary experience, deeply painful experience. But for me, it was also incredibly transformative. And I think it was the same for a lot of people. Had I not been forced inside my house and forced inside myself, this transformation never would have happened. And so, well, yeah, it was definitely about avoiding a plague. It was more (laughs) so about connecting with the kid in me who I think I hadn't um, really reconciled with and and given a hug to. I think I had kind of left him out in the cold for so many years um, for a number of different reasons. And, you know, that's we don't really have to get into that. But in terms of your question about what it is that this gives me that a retreat doesn't, I think it's exactly um, what I said about the the what I realized was the imagination is as much of a healing space as it is a place of creativity and wonderment. And I think that we actually have um, a lot of research to do scientifically exploring the imagination. They've started to do a lot of research when it comes to accessing the imagination as a tool to heal PTSD. But in that instance, the studies that have been done with that, that have shown great, again, transformation and reversing those chemicals in our brains that are switched when we experience trauma, especially in childhood. But the way that they have been operating those um, studies is that they're having folks reimagine experiences they've gone through and had them transform them into different um, narratives so that they could really take control of the narrative and find the power in it and find the healing in it. And for me, it's a real-time thing. The pe- question I think I'm I'm positing with this multimedia travelogue, which, yes, is uh, uh, at face value exactly everything I've explained, but really it's an investigation as to how the human imagination in real time can protect us in times of great trouble. I think we are so often told that we need to grow up and that we need to be adults. And I fully agree with that. I think there's a lot of merit to that. I take a lot of issue with people who live these sort of Peter Pan lifestyles. It's not based in reality. And as uh, an addict who's in recovery and have been in recovery for 10 years, it is very easy for me to escape reality. That's the whole reason that I drank and did drugs for so long. But um if I can escape reality in a safe way and activate my imagination and uh, allow myself that freedom of expression and creativity, um, I, I believe that there's a lot of healing there. And so that's that's why I kept going to it. And I didn't realize that's why I kept going to it. Um, and you know there is a sp- <laughs> there is a space for you know going to a retreat um, at the Omega Center and <laughs> and centering myself and doing yoga and and doing all of those things. But this is just uh, has become a major part of my spiritual practice, which keeps me grounded and humble as a a tiny little mortal on this planet with so many things to see um, and one shot to see them. Well, walk us through. Uh some of the places you've been and uh, how do you find these places and what makes you choose one place over another? Mm. Well, I'll never say no. Um, (laughs) And I'm there. And I have said no upon arrival to many places. You know, it started a lot with just a good old Google search. But the thing I realized very quickly is that the urban 
exploration community or urbex as many of your listeners might know um they're very protective and they're very uh guarded when it comes to sharing information <clears throat> which is something that i sort of um have honestly found a little bit troubling but i understand where they're coming from they're trying to protect these sanctuaries that they have discovered even though they don't own them and um it it really took getting to know a lot of people who were already immersed in the world and had been immersed in the world, you know, incredible artists and explorers who had been doing this kind of work for years. And so I was um, really fortunate when I started making this work to meet a lot of very cool people who had been doing it for a long time, who did offer to take me under their wing and did offer me um, all of the information and resources to find places. Now, on the opposite side of all of that, there oftentimes is this very beautiful thing that happens where I don't mean to stumble on a space and it just sort of happens. And those are the instances I think that are the most magical. I had gone down to right after I got my first COVID uh, vaccine dose, I drove down to North Carolina solely with the intention of going to the beach and the Outer Banks and being with myself for a couple days and celebrating this needle that had gone into my arm with a potion that was supposed to be magic um, and, uh, on the drive down there, I wind up, I wound up passing an abandoned water park, which I wound up exploring, didn't mean to find it. I found this, uh, graveyard, um, sort of like a gravekeeper shanty, this house that was attached to a graveyard right on the beach, also abandoned, beautiful exploration. And then on the drive home, going back, I wound up driving by this FDR era uh, Works Progress Administration um, middle and high school that was also abandoned. And it was really one of those moments where I was driving down a county highway on the eastern shores of Virginia. And all of a sudden I looked to my left and there's this gorgeous, very clearly abandoned building. And it's like, I keep driving and I'm like, if I don't stop, I'm going to regret it. And, you know, it's like a movie. I screech <laughs> 180 degrees and, and roll back. Um, those are the three that I was popping to my head simply because they were accidental. Um, and <laughs> I'm, I don't know how I feel about like the universe putting things in front of us. I'm not really sure I'm about that, but I do think that, um, really beautiful opportunities arise when, uh, one keeps one's eyes open and attentive. Um, and so those are kind of the ways that I find them. Uh, there are places that I will not explore, um, in fact, this past weekend, a friend of mine, we went to this abandoned house here in the Hudson Valley. It's right across the street from this beautiful apple orchard in New Paltz. And uh, I had passed this house a number of times and always wanted to go. The second that I stepped foot into the house, it was very clear to me that it was currently somebody's home and that some squatting was going on in there. And I immediately realized I don't think this is this space for me to be doing this today. And so I left. I didn't get to explore it. Um, and that that does happen. Uh, I won't go to second floors of spaces anymore because of what happened at that abandoned school I mentioned previously. I fell through the floor Ooh. when I went upstairs to the second floor. And that was I was an idiot. I went right into the center <laughs> of the room and like it had clearly been damaged. And I, I plummeted right through. Thank goodness I caught myself um, oh my as I, I went through. but. I've invented rules like that because um, 
I, I don't want to die in the process of exploring <laughs> these places. Um, I actually want to keep living. So that's that's kind of how they they happen. Well, other than squatters or, you know, obviously dangerous, are there places you've gone to and, and just gone, you know what? I'm not feeling it. Oh, you know, just for one reason or another, just not registering with you that you're not getting any kind of, I don't know, story out of it. You know what I mean? Just kind of like, oh, oh. yeah. Absolutely. I have a I have a backlog of places that I went to that didn't, for whatever reason, instigate my imagination going to the places that it, it does go. Um, it doesn't always happen, but uh, it, even even in those instances, there is something that is uh, very present and historical about exploring them that's still interesting to me. But yeah, it it doesn't always happen. My imagination isn't always kicking on and inventing characters and you know creating whole new worlds. Um, but in those instances, I still can appreciate it. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's history. It's it's American history. And and to your point about that, uh, I think you said Greg abandoned was the person. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'm necessarily interested in the dystopian aspect of it, but I do think that one of the things that has been an intention of mine with this project is recreating uh, basically an audio roadmap that tells a different side of the story of this country. Because through the lens of these very unique uh, spaces, we're talking about all kinds of things and problems that we are facing and have faced for decades, if not centuries, in this country. And they bear witness to it. There is an abandoned battery factory in Huguenot, New York, which is about 45 minutes south of where I live. And overnight, this company up and took all the jobs, about 600 of them, and moved them down to Mexico for a quarter of the cost. And overnight, that town and the entire economy dissipated. And when you drive through it, that happened maybe 30 years ago. You can still feel the effects of it when you drive through on the way to Port Jervis. It's devastating. Drug use is rampant and everybody is poor. It's uh, it's abysmal. There's an abandoned factory up just outside of Albany, New York. It's the Altec Steel Corporation. Huge complex. 17 buildings. Massive sprawl. They are a super fun site. And when the plant filed for bankruptcy and all of those people lost their jobs, again, it deeply impacted the economy of the area. In addition to the taxpayers were the people who were responsible for the cleanup of the groundwater that they had contaminated for years and years and years. And so that brings up issues of health care. And all of these people now who are in close proximity to this land that has been poisoned for years, who are now experiencing things like Hodgkin's lymphoma, cancer. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. They were never held responsible. They got away with it. And the taxpayer was responsible for $16.1 million just of the physical remediation. We can't calculate the healthcare costs that have arisen because of the poison that people have been consuming for the past however many years that place has been in existence, abandoned or not. So this is all to say that I agree with uh, Greg Abandoned that there is something really remarkable about it. But for me, it's less about the dystopia and more about recreating a narrative or reinterpreting the story that we've been told about this country that is supposed to be so great. Um, And I think, in fact, it is anything but great. 
um, which is sad because we are actually the at the best point we've ever been in in human history, just in terms of technology and personal understanding and spirituality and togetherness and community. Um, but I do think we have a long way to go. And I think that these spaces tell a really cool story that can maybe help us figure out how to move forward as a nation, uh, particularly in this very precarious moment we find ourselves in, where it seems like everybody uh, hates each other. And that's a pretty scary thing. Well, when you look at things like, say, the abandoned monastery or um, something like that, it kind of tells, these abandoned places tell, a, the, it's history, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would think that uh, most people that are into these kind of things are into history. Why are there so many abandoned factories in upstate new york oh because at one time it was it was booming you know new york was the center of the universe and they needed to build stuff somewhere but i mean that's just indicative to what happened to manufacturing towns all over the country and upstate new york got hit particularly hard yes Uh, even even not only just moving out of new york moving to uh, even to the south you know they didn't even just go all the way to mexico some of them just moved to like cheaper states like we're going to move this to Alabama. Well, there's people left behind, you know, and and you can go in Pennsylvania and see what, you know, coal mining. And uh, I remember I shot this show that I hosted for um, HGTV. We we shot old homes and uh, we went to Duluth, Minnesota. And these beautiful old mansions that were there, because at one time with the iron ore and everything, uh, it, they made steel and all this stuff up there. It was going to be the next Chicago, you know, Duluth was going to be it. And then it wasn't. But what was left behind were these, you know, beautiful Victorian mansions and stuff. So some were abandoned, you know what I mean? And uh, so it it does, you know, you're reading the history into a place. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know what it says about the monastery that there used to be a lot more nuns around. (laughs) Or that, you know, or you see how far the Catholic Church's wings spread around the world, you know, they're everywhere. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, that, sorry. Oh, it's a calendar thing that, that abandoned, uh, not abandoned. It's very active. That nunnery, which um, did not start as a nunnery. It, it started in 1909. It was the modern woodman of America, which was a, a a fraternal uh, society um, that was built specifically to provide healing to people. And, you know, the science wasn't great at the time, but the intention was there. And this space existed for people to come heal at a very, 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 very low cost, um, if if not at all for free. And so even there, right, that that right there is like, well, if we built hundreds of sanatoriums back in the early 1900s, and provided essentially free healthcare to people to heal during a different pandemic. What, what, what were, what did we miss this time around? You know? Um, So that's another story that that place tells it's, it's, it is, it's really interesting. And I, I think it's alive. um, And I think it could be very helpful if, if we, if we paid a little bit closer attention. Uh, How many different uh, episodes have you put out? So the first season is 12 episodes. And then in the interim, I have been releasing these bonus episodes in partnership with different organizations and uh, individuals doing really unique work in the urbex space. Um, For example, uh, I partnered with History Colorado, which is the state agency um, in the state of Colorado to produce uh, 
a bonus episode that focused more on the history of the MWA tuberculosis sanatorium. Um, and then I just recently produced an episode with this unbelievable photographer, Marissa Scheinfeld, who um, you might remember a few years back, the New York Times published a series of photos that were now and then photos of the the, the Borscht Belt um, and the, the, the remaining resorts that were there. And uh, Marissa had gone in and set up these shots where she recaptured exactly the same angles and everything. Yeah, I've seen uh, those. Yeah. And I got to have a fabulous conversation with her. And as it was going to just be a bonus episode where I put the interview up and that was that. But she was such a goddamn good storyteller that two minutes in, I was like, I, this this deserves its own treatment. I got to produce a real thing here. Um, I spoke with Maxim Gerb, who's a French man who started the Abandoned World app, which is a crowdsourcing app that provides information on a geotagged map in an app to bring people to these kinds of places. And it's all crowdsourced. So very cool people doing very cool things. Um, and then season two will also be 12 episodes. And that comes out September 30th in tandem with the second episode of the Hudsey series. Have they, have you ever gotten any kind of uh, blowback from this Urbex community by, you know, naming these places and, uh, giving them publicity because like you said they'd like to keep a lot of these places secret in their locations have they ever come to you and go hey keep that keep that one under your hat no and if they did i wouldn't honestly pay it any mind um <laughs> what other people think of me isn't my business and uh there's this great <laughs> there's this great quote that rupaul says um he says uh Unless them bitches paying your bills, pay them bitches no mind. And obviously, I don't. I don't feel that way at all. I have a deep reverence and respect for everybody in the urbex community, secret keepers or not. But I've never gotten any blowback, and I think it's because my intention is not to give away information. My intention is to share a beautiful experience that I think actually could help a lot of people. And I think create a lot of healing for a lot of people, especially now, you know, we are, uh, as as the WHO just said last week, it is no longer a global health crisis that we're in. But the aftermath is still very present for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people for many years to come are going to be dealing with everything that we just went through as a collective. And so any way that I can help provide any sense of relief and comfort and solace during this repairing moment that we seem to have found ourselves in, I'm I'm going to do it. Um, and if it means that a couple people send me nasty messages on Instagram, well, you know, there, there are worse things, you know. Isn't it kind of amazing with like, especially in upstate New York and the Catskills and all those old resorts that were up there, that so many of them sit on that beautiful land and just kind of decaying. And now with especially during the I know during the pandemic, the home prices went nuts up there. You know, anything two hours outside of any major city, the, the homes took off. And still, you know, these things sit there on this awesome land. I mean, what's the story behind those? I mean, are they just locked up and families own them? Or is it public land? What happened to these places? It's kind of a mixture. I think the Borscht Belt uh, specifically, um, because of the history of anti-Semitism that wound up creating that entire phenomena and subculture. Oh, yeah. Uh, My family uh, used to go. My dad used to go as a kid. 
<laughs> exactly. I think there is a very, I, and, and it, I think it lingers a protective nature around these places. I think, and I talked to Marissa about this. If you listen to that episode, um, she, she really goes into depth about this. Um, you know, they were, they were created as their own sanctuaries because they weren't welcome anywhere. And so they said, well, to hell with all of you, we're just going to build our own. And, um, I think despite the fact that the economy changed and all of the resorts went under, there's still this um, culture that exists and this nostalgia for that history. And so I, I think that, yeah, a lot of families do privately own them still. And I don't know if they necessarily want to let them go, but a lot of them have been demolished. I mean, you know, we lost the great Grossingers just a few years back. Um, and what's very cool is even though there are still these existing structures like the Neville, the the pines in the the Homowack Lodge, the list goes on and on that still are in some semblance of existence. Um, Marissa is spearheading this thing called the Borscht Belt Historical Marker Project, and they are putting up. If you've been to New York State, you know you see those blue signs up and down highways that designate historical places and things that happened in those places. And they got funding to do that for Borscht Belt, Borscht Belt Hotels because there had never been any kind of historical marker for any of them. And these these huge resorts um, are actually really influential on a number of different things in American culture: music, movies, dance. I mean, they were the they were the birthplace for a lot of people. Like Jerry Seinfeld got his start. Oh, everybody did. Everybody worked. Yeah, there. exactly. And so the fact that there was no any history that was documented for the public to enjoy and to really bear witness to the beauty of these places um, was troubling. So Marissa started this project and they're getting all of these signs up that will have QR codes with audio tours. It's going to, it's going to be really cool. Um, That's great. Answer, yeah. To answer your original question. I don't know. I think probably partially nostalgia. I think also to be completely honest with you, it's cheaper to keep the land that way than to go through with a full demolition. And yeah. so would rather not spend the money. So do you have a bucket list of dream destinations you really want to go to, like that you haven't been yet? I mean, what, what's on your top top five or so? Yeah, the, 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 the preeminent destination for me right now is this abandoned retirement village in Turkey. It's about three hours outside of Istanbul. And it got a lot of attention a few years ago, actually oh. probably right at the beginning of the pandemic. Is yeah. that the one with the, they all look like Disney castles? That's the one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've seen those in, in photos. Yeah. I want to go there, um, I think, mostly because it's a little bit different than the places I'm used to to going. Um, these are empty houses. But it's the but it's the idea of just like a again a massive sprawl of just these empty Disney baby castles. It's it's actually very comical to me. Um <laughs> uh, so that's a that's a big one. Um and then there are a bunch of locations uh, up and around, uh, you had mentioned Duluth, but the the northern parts of the country that are really interesting to me. Um, and also in my home state, there are a couple abandoned mining towns that actually a lot of people don't know about that are totally condemned and totally uh, illegal to go to. And I definitely totally want to go. <laughs> um, and then... Additionally, there is this, and I've I've been meaning to to just like bite the bullet and and buy a a plane ticket out to San Diego, 
but about an hour and 15 minutes outside of San Diego, in the middle of the desert, right at the border between Mexico, there is this enormous abandoned train, passenger train. Nobody knows how it got there. Nobody knows why it's there. And a, a friend of mine who's in the community, um, I begged, begged her to give the, give me the location. And she finally caved and gave it to me. So that's <laughs> the two I mentioned, the, the village in Turkey and that train are kind of like my top destinations right now. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is that I, I reached a, a you know, a, a, a moment um, recently where I was like, wait, is this thing going to have an end? Like I have, this thing has to have an end. I can't do this forever. Um, and luckily I, I figured out what the end is going to look like. I'll always explore. Um, but I only had three seasons in me because I think, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I always laugh at how Garfield, the cartoon went on for like 50 years too long. Um, <laughs> and I, I think there's something really beautiful when a, an artist decides that the thing is done now. Um, and I just recently figured that that ending out it's an, it's going to be a couple of years from now. Um, but I won't be doing this forever. You know, there are other stories that I want to explore and tell in different ways. Um, but, like a BB, it's like a BBC version, you know, you get yes. the season is six episodes, you know, <laughs> exactly. Six good episodes. We don't need 22 watered down episodes. <laughs> totally. Give me a 90 minute Broadway play any day over. Two <laughs> well, was that that was your your background, right? Were you a, an actor or are you still are you still do it? Yeah, actually, I guess I just I guess I'm doing a play in June that I you don't like, know. Agreed. I know. I know. I know. I just like, I'm still kind of like, what? Cause I haven't, I haven't done theater in years. You know, I, I stopped doing theater um, and I stopped uh, doing film and television um, on purpose. I mean, a, because I got sober and I had like a lot of shit to figure out, but B, I just, I never, I just didn't think, I don't think, and maybe this has changed because of everything that we just went through, but I just didn't have the spine for it. You know, I going into rooms and begging people to like me just wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't for me. I just like, I didn't have the backbone for it. And I, I have a deep, uh, deep reverence for actors actually um, for a number of reasons. But I think the main one is it's, it is a constant get up and go beg people to give me work. Um, and that's not something that I think that I was built for, at least not in this lifetime. Um, but I'm doing this play, which should be fun. It's like, it's like a little festival in Rosendale, which is where I live, um, should be super fun. And I will never say, I would never say no to the possibility of it again. Um, but I don't dream about it. And I, I, <laughs> I think it was like, you know, when I was a kid, everybody told me, oh, you're really good at this thing. You should do this thing. And I was like, OK, I'll I'll get a BFA in musical theater. And <laughs> that turned out to be, first of all, unbelievably expensive. Yeah. Um, way worth the money, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the thing. It's like, was it the BFA that I, I paid for or was it getting to study in the Netherlands for six months or yeah. getting to host my own radio show while I was in college or taking songwriting classes at Berkeley? Like, yeah, I loved my program and I loved, you know, getting a BFA, but it's, it's like, it I shouldn't cannot, be that expensive. It shouldn't it should be. not be that expensive 
For sure. And I will never be able to say with with a straight face that I have a BFA in musical theater. That's just not in my purview. <laughs> Um, cause it, it's, it's funny, you know, I, I got a BFA in feelings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, this is like, I mean, did you go to Emerson? Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a good guess. How did you know that? You know what? Uh, Boston and BFA probably. Right. was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. percent. Yeah. You know, it's, it was a, it was a wackadoodle place. I gotta say, um, a lot of comedians went there. You know, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a comic, Leno. you know, a lot of people like Dennis Leary, Leno, and um, I think Jeanette Raffalo went there and a, a bunch yep. of people. Yeah. Jennifer Coolidge, uh, Andrea Martin, who I love. Um, yeah, it's it's a cool it's a, it is a cool place. I just find um, American college to be so it's like, what were we thinking when we took a bunch of hormonal like <laughs> teenagers and threw them into a pen with each other it's just it's so funny to me and emerson i mean god like the to go dr- from to go from colorado springs to that must Yo, have been like it blew your head off right it, i mean it did it was total culture shock and also i had been waiting for it for so long because i had been as i said oh, sure all these secrets but yeah it was it was an interesting transition and um you know i definitely like I did a lot of drugs and I drank a <laughs> ton of alcohol. <laughs> like I had a good time, but it was it was pretty whack. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I loved I loved my experience there. Yeah, but this is one of these things we talk about about travel being transformative and healing. You know, a, a lot of my growth in college. I mean, I just went to some state university a couple hours from my house outside, you know, in Illinois. But just getting out of the house, I grew up more than any book could ever tell. And then when I got out of college and left the country for the first time, I did more growth there than, than I maybe learned in the last four years. Do you know what I mean? So I think how much of it was just, yeah, I mean, it's necessary, but I think the bigger thing is just getting out of the home and getting into a new environment. Some people just need that for their entire world to open up to them. I totally agree. I was also really fortunate. My parents wouldn't allow me to apply to school um, anywhere within like a certain number of square miles from (laughs) where I grew up because they wanted me to go somewhere and experience something new. So I'm really grateful to my parents for that. Um, I don't think I would have anyway, but it it was like a rule. We weren't allowed to to do it. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, that's great. I totally agree with you. And I think, well, and you know, you've you've traveled quite often in this this show show discusses it but um i agree with you i think there's way more to be learned in the real world than there is inside of a textbook Mm -hmm. if um you were to do this i I mean aside from the turkey one i mean have any of your episodes been uh international or are they mostly i mean it says american (laughs) ruins yeah yeah um i so in short Yes, this coming season, there is an episode that takes place in Portugal. Um, And I just recently published a double header story on the blog about um, some abandoned structures that I found in Mexico when I was down there a few weeks ago, um, right on the Yucatan Peninsula. And that one kind of does count because Mexico is America, Um, (laughs) you know, but I think more so when I say all American, it's like almost a reference to myself 
Um, and I do consider myself to be uh, an all-American in a lot of different ways. Um, and I think the, you know, the the ruins piece of it is it's like, this is also about myself and, and repairing a lot of the things in myself that I hadn't ever addressed simply because I was too scared to. Um, but yeah, there are international locations for sure. And I think in season three, what I really want to do um, is start to explore other people's stories the way that I did with Marissa, um, because I can only hear myself talk so much uh, <laughs> before I get really, really tired of it. Um, so I think uh, I, I've been sort of starting to sketch out what season three will look like, which is, I mean, we're talking a year and a half from now, um, but I think I'm going to bring other voices into it. And I would love to go other places. I would love to cover all of the continents. You know, there are just a wealth of places to be seen. Um, and I don't know if this is something that, that you resonate with, but isn't it amazing that we're never going to see it all? No. Yeah. There's always something. There's always something else out there. Yep. yep. Where in Portugal were you? So I was just outside of Lisbon in a town called uh, Ericeira, which is like a huge surfing community. Um, I am not okay. a surfer, but my friend Nina and her husband moved there. I guess this was 2019. Um, and they bought this beautiful house overlooking the ocean. And Nina was asked my friend Shannon and I if we wanted to go. We went. And um, while we were there, I stumbled across this, uh, I stumbled across this abandoned restaurant. Um, overlooking the city of Lisbon. We never spent any time in Ericeira. Like we went into Lisbon every single day because it was just, I found it to be so extraordinary. Um, I was just there in September. What did you think of it? I've been there before. Lisbon, I love. I mean, we went, were you near uh, Keshkesh? Their place right by the sea there? I'm not sure. I All I know is that Ericeira is 25 minutes north of Lisbon by car. All right. Yeah, well, we were out there, and did you go to Sintra at all either? Uh, yes. To the castles? Yeah, yeah it's yes. beautiful. It's very cool. Yeah, it's a um, great country, and your friend had good timing because it's been found out. It's been found <laughs> out, and they and they caught on that it's been found out. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, this abandoned restaurant was just overlooking the city of Portugal on this hill, or city of Portugal, city of Lisbon on this hill. Um, and what was interesting is the day that I found it was the day that the Ukraine war broke out. Oh, and when I was there, I was thinking about my friend Daniel, who is a Ukrainian artist um, who is still in Kiev and has been in Kiev since day one. Um, And so that entire episode is actually really sort of a love letter to him and to his experience. It just happens to be told through the lens of this abandoned restaurant, because as I was there, I had this moment where I was like, "I, I can't believe how lucky i am sometimes you know i it is unbelievable to me that here i am just like of my own volition and with my freedom able to just like waltz about this country with with without any care in the world you know and meanwhile my friend daniel is is locked in in a in a city and he doesn't know what's going to happen to it you know um not to like take the depressing turn, but like that, that's that episode. I'm really actually really eager to produce it because he is a, he's an amazing human being. And uh, actually (laughs) he got pretty famous because (laughs) uh, he had, he, he created this beautiful painting of, of Britney Spears after she got her emancipation 
and she posted it on Instagram and he blew up. Wow. Um, <laughs> it's so funny um, that Britney Spears was responsible for his, his discovery. Um, anyway, that I, I've sort of rambled at this point. Once again, um, Britney saves the day. Britney is always saving the day, man. She <laughs> is, but she's my babe. What's uh, aside from falling through uh, the second floor of a place? Is there any other dangerous things that have happened? Have you ever come across any wild animals? Any uh, police chase you off or security? Yeah, all all of the above. Um, in episode five, actually, of the podcast, uh, it's called Coyote, and I explored. Um, the abandoned batteries and bunkers in the Marin headlands just outside of uh, San Francisco and Sausalito. Um, and it, the whole, the whole episode uh, was a sort of reconciling with my divorce and um, all of the things that went with that. But right at the end of the episode, um, when I was exploring that day, uh, I was, I was taking a series of portraits and I heard this noise and turned and not even three feet away from me was this coyote watching me. Um, and I, I, it was uh, it was intense because coyotes aren't typically like going to come up to a human of their own volition. But this motherfucker was like, <laughs> he he did not. They it. She did not. This thing did not care. It was so curious. And in my head, I was like. I, you know, I grew up with mountain lions and bears, but I actually don't know what to do if a cougar approaches you or like a, a coyote approaches you. Um, and then he got pretty bored pretty quickly. I guess I wasn't that interesting and he just walked off. Um, I've had the cops called on me twice uh, by people who I, I guess don't have hobbies. Um, and uh, I'm trying... There was one experience with a squatter that was really interesting. And this is an episode in the upcoming season. I found this abandoned, um, it was like a roadside market. And uh, it had been in a like a one of those kitschy roadside amusement parks with like the baby rides. And um, it was abandoned. It was in the uh, in the mountains of Oregon. I was driving down to see my brother. My mom lives in Portland. My brother lives in Southern Oregon. And I was driving down to see him. And it was another one of those things where I saw it and like screeched off the highway. And um, as I was exploring it, this dude just sort of like appeared out of nowhere. He was like 102 feet tall and had like so much hair and a huge beard. And I could tell he probably had a switchblade. And like, mm. but was, what was so funny is like the image of him, he was, he, you know, and he, he was talking to me about living off the land and off the grid. And we, and he wound up being a very nice guy. And then I stupidly gave him a ride, which is like probably the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I don't know what happened there, but um, what was so funny is he was talking about, you know, living off the grid and like down with government and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, he's like chugging an Arizona iced tea and just like the image of him, like, talking about like clean living but chugging arizona iced tea was really yeah. <laughs> was really funny to me. um that, i can't believe you you got you gave him a ride for how long dude it it, it was like three minutes but okay like into it, town or something but three minutes it doesn't take three minutes to pull a switchblade it takes two no. seconds you know like and i <laughs> and for and also like the more dangerous piece of the story is i told my mom like i don't oh. know what i was thinking but it just slipped out and i 
Yeah, that was it. That was that was the dumbest thing I've done uh, <laughs> for sure. And in, in these spaces. Wow. OK. Yeah. Any um, any like crazy, I don't know, flight stories. Have you have any horrible flights, any uh, terrible travel tales in that one? Uh, getting places, getting places. Worst no, flight you've ever had say, say like worst one in terms of delays, turbulence, lost luggage, anything. Well, I can tell you, uh, this wasn't me. It was my mother and it, but I'm, I'm involved. Uh, when she dropped me off at college, she was clearly upset. She got on a plane and this woman got on, uh, and she had a huge bag of Burger King and she was trashed. I mean, just right. than you've ever seen. And she pounded this Burger King. And then when the plane took off, she leaned over into my mom's lap and puked into her lap, um, which was just sort of the icing on the cake. Uh, for me, I mean, I don't know. I got stuck in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport for four days. Um, four days? Four days. There was a huge uh, snowstorm in Colorado. It was my freshman year of college. and I. I flew into um, Dallas, Fort Worth, and no flights were going in and out of Colorado. And it was a four-day stint because, you know, so many people got backed up, whatever. Um, but what was cool is, you know, I was I was eight, 19 at that point. I was 19 at that point. And I went to the international wing because I texted a friend who lived in the area. And she was like, oh, go to the international wing at DFW. It's really, it's a really cool place. And she was right. And I went to this Mexican restaurant and I got to be super chummy with the bartender there. And so she was slinging drinks to this underage kid <laughs> the whole time. And I loved it. Um, but that was that was tough. Um, oh, yeah, I I uh, I missed a flight. Um, this is why I don't drink anymore. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Flight in Hong Kong. I was flying from Hong Kong back to South Korea. Um, I worked at a children's theater company for a year there. And I I had gotten trashed and gone out and you know done all sorts of crazy things in Hong Kong, but I missed that flight. Um, I missed a flight in Miami. Um, I I my sister we were on a plane when I was in eighth grade and she was picking something up in the aisles and this this grown man kicked her like oh. deliberately kicked her because she was in in his way. Um, but I don't think anything like truly insane has happened. Um, I got arrested in South Korea. That was wait intense. a minute. You've been sitting on these South Korea stories for an hour. <laughs> what the hell have you been doing? You I don't know, man. For I, a year? I was there for a year. I worked at a children's theater company that was owned and operated by the Korean government. Um, and it was the craziest thing. It, it really was. Seoul? Uh, it was 45 minutes north of Seoul in Pajushi, which is right below the DMZ. Wow. So where I lived was the weirdest place. It was like a sort of like a nightmarish version of it's a small world. <laughs> um, the Korean government uh, in the mid 2000s, like the mid early 2000s and uh, 2010s, excuse me, built these huge theme parks for folks who couldn't afford to, to study abroad uh, with ESL immersion programs. And so their idea was, well, we will just build these, English villages <laughs> and the poor kids who can't afford to go across the world uh, to the United States or wherever, they will go live in these uh, places. And we're going to put rides in them and trolleys. And the one that I worked at was the prototype for this larger organization called Kiangi uh, Paju Yangmaul. Kiangi English Village is what it translates to. But um, 
they had a theater company in it and it was an ESL children's theater company. And my job, I was the resident composer and I wrote children's musicals for a year um, to teach kids English. And we had uh, the theater was, I think, 850 seats. And at most, I think at most, um, we filled 30 seats at one one time. <laughs> so it was the weirdest thing because it was also right right under the DMZ. So we could hear mortars and shelling all the time because there were military bases all around us. I could see from my apartment, I could see in across the Han River into North Korea. Um, and I would take runs on the gyro, which is the Freedom Highway. Um, and it was, you know, right along the, the DMZ there. Um, but I got arrested because my ex-boyfriend, uh, Nick, sent me a care package and decided that it was going to be a really good idea to put um, cannabis cookies into oh, this package. Oh, oh, no. um, and didn't tell me that these were included in the package. And so they set any package that goes into that country, they uh, dogs sniff them, they open them. Oh, yeah. They tore apart your package. They tore apart my package and then they put it back together (laughs) and they set up a little sting operation. So when I went to sign for the package, I'll never forget Mrs. Park. She gave me this weird look, the package lady, like what's the fuck's her problem and i signed for the package and i walked outside in this i was intercepted and thrown into a black van and they i mean it's a really long story but yeah i was totally arrested and um the conclusion was that i was the first expatriate in 10 years uh that my translator in that case um had seen where uh they let the person go I was the first person he had ever seen in his 10 years in that division as a translator with the National Korean Police, where they actually believed me uh, and and let oh me God. let me go. Um, but it was insane, man. Like, well, how uh, long were you in the in held? How long were you held? 70, 72 hours. Oh, um, that must have been frightening. Dude, I don't even know how to explain it. It's funny now, obviously. Um but at the time, yeah, it was deeply traumatizing. And like I had seen stupidly broke down palace before I went to South Korea. So oh I like, I was yeah. creating this story in my head that I was going to wind up like Claire Danes in that movie, you know, whatever. And you're um, like, yeah, that's Thailand. We, uh, this is that's Korea. Thailand. This, this is yeah, they're, 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 yeah, this is a their first world country, right. you know. Um, but funny. Wow. the thing that was the most interesting was they um, they were amazing. And there were all of these instances and these moments where I couldn't believe how I was treated with such respect and with such dignity um, in ways that you would never experience in this country. And I've also been arrested in this country. And it's a complete, I mean, it's a completely different story. Um, And like, for example, when they went to, they took me to my apartment to search my apartment there were six of these policemen and my boss, Mickey, who was translating at that point. And I walked into my apartment and uh, I, I realized there wasn't anybody behind me. And I turned around and all six of these pretty beefy dudes are in the hallway. And I'm I'm like trying to usher them in. And, and Mickey's like, oh, no, Blake, they want to know if if you want them to take off their shoes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can you imagine any 
officer of the law in the United States of America being like, should I take my shoes off before I ransack your apartment for drugs? No, that's not going to happen here. Um, they drove me when they, they put me in the, I call it the, the paddy wagon. When they put me in the, the van, 80 year old person, they put yeah. me in the, the van and drove down. And I had said to Mickey right before we, we went to the headquarters, um, asked him if I was allowed to bring a snack. And he was like, Oh no, they're, they're going to take you to lunch. And I was like, what? And so I wound up sitting at this really fancy Galbi restaurant in total silence, eating this gorgeous Korean barbecue for like 90 <laughs> minutes in complete silence. Oh, that's delicious. Cream. So delicious. So that's sweet. Hilarious. I barely could eat because I was so scared. Yeah. Um, anyway, there's a lot of other stuff like the, the, the United States embassy, they were just a train wreck. They like, right. As the guy from the embassy who he, he shouldn't have even bothered coming because right. there was no purpose, but like, as he was, his name was, his name was Kevin. As he was walking out, he turns and he's like, Oh, um, do you want us to call anybody? And I was like, that's like your first job. Like you had one job, man. And it's to call my people and let them know I'm in custody. Oh, and they like, you know, my mom and my father were my emergency contacts with the state. Um, and they called them at like what was three o'clock in the morning here. They left a voicemail. <laughs> it's like this is 12 years ago. They left a voicemail and all they said was, uh, hi, Miss Ferguson. This this is so and so from the the United States Embassy in Seoul. We're calling about your son. We need you to call us back immediately at your earliest convenience. No other information. So you can so be mom, dead. You can you know exactly. And when my mom called them, they were closed because it was the opposite time zone. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was wild. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I bet when you saw you know this latest incident of Brittany Griner in Russia. You know, it must have just all of a sudden gave you flashbacks and going, oh, man, I know that. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That one, I think, was so different, though, for a number of reasons. I mean, I definitely I definitely did have moments where I was like, fuck, I remember kind of what that was like. But we're talking about a queer black woman in an enemy. Oh, yeah. Territory. I'm not comparing the weight of both, you know, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, holy but shit. Simple. Like, you don't think. It's amazing how like cannabis, we've we've just kind of like forgotten of that it's a serious thing around the world. Oh yeah. You I mean, I'm, I'm like pounding my, you know, C B D infused seltzer as we speak. And <laughs> right. Like this is not a thing in Korea. Right. It's just not. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wait, uh all right. Well, uh, we need to wrap this up, but I just wanted you to uh now this is where you get your plugs in. You can tell people how do people find For the sure. show and uh give us your social media and everything else. Yeah, sure. So if you're interested in experiencing All American Ruins and all of the different pieces of it, you can just go to allamericanruins.com. Um, you can listen to the podcast, which is called Abandoned, the All American Ruins podcast, wherever you one gets one's podcasts. Um, and I am on Instagram at All American Ruins. My favorite thing that has happened uh, is when people write to me and tell me their stories about exploring ab abandoned spaces. Um, it happens more often than I anticipated. And so I would love to get folks, uh, emails and, and DMS. Cause it's, it's a really cool thing to share in the love and the joy of it with people. That's great. And, uh, we'll have links to all, uh, these sites and stuff on oh, uh, travel tales, podcast.com. 
And uh, finally, Blake, what do you think all this, uh, the travel that you've done, not only here, but around the world and, and the places that you've seen and the people you've met, how has it changed your uh, opinions of the world and how has it shaped you and how has it changed you? What have you learned? Oh, man. Uh, that's a really, really good question, Mike. Um, you know what I think I'll say? And it's it's kind of related to something we talked about earlier. Uh, I was raised to believe that I lived in the greatest geographical plot of land on the planet. Um, and I have realized, having lived and worked in three different uh, countries three different continents, that that is the furthest from the truth. And that I am far more interested in a globalist mindset um, than I am in a xenophobic mindset. Um, I also have learned uh, that there is beauty in every single shred of what we get to experience in life, both the good and the bad. Um and I think the biggest thing, uh, you know, with kerfuffles like the story I just told you, um, I have learned it is just there is no reason to take oneself too seriously. Um, it's too short. This little weird accident that happened where we all wound up on this rock, you know, hurtling through outer space. Um, and so uh, I think there's a lot of gratitude wrapped up in that. And I don't mean that as a buzzword. I mean that as like a real formative practice of getting up and being really grateful to be alive. It's pretty cool. No, that's great. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. I'm so grateful that you, you were down. Um, and thanks, thanks for having me. This is a really cool thing that you're doing. I, anybody that's making interesting travel content um, <laughs> is like a big my fucking hero so thank you well i appreciate it and uh we'll uh listen i can't wait to hear more uh of the new season when it comes out no thanks mike i appreciate it all right blake file everybody did i say it right perfect awesome (laughs) thanks man yeah no problem man